So if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Romans chapter 2. We're going to continue this look at Romans. Now, I've printed in your bulletin the New Living Translation. It's very loose translation, but it's easy to read and easy to understand. Some of the arguments that Paul makes can be a little bit complex, and he'll make an argument, and then he'll digress, and then he'll go over here and over there. The book is notoriously difficult to uh, outline. Uh, But the New Living Translation has some really good uh, and interesting things. And of course, uh, uh, whenever whenever it's not, I will refer you back to the ESV or some other uh, translation to help us all with it. But I think you'll find the reading. I'm doing all of my Bible reading for this year, and most of last year I did it in the New Living Translation. And uh, I really enjoyed it, so... Uh, Now hear God's word. Chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 17. You call yourselves Jews who are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with Him. You know what He wants. You know what is right because you have been taught His law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the way of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry. But do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than the uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you're not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. This is the word of the Lord. Now look, all of you have had uh, uh, people in your life that you love and would do anything uh, to protect them. You would, if you knew that your relative or your husband or wife or one of your children had cancer and was going to die, you would do anything in your power, most people, to help them. Even to the point of saying, I will, God, give me their cancer. I'll take their cancer, please. 
And if that wasn't a possibility, we would do everything in our power to reach into that person's life and be ruthless. You know, get the vaccine, go get chemo, take the surgery, do whatever you have to do. We would not rest until we helped them or at least tried to get the message across that they are in danger. And Paul is doing that very thing with humanity. He's saying, you've got a fateful disease. In fact, you're going to die. And what is awaiting you is a grave, and it is so horrific and so awful that I'm pleading with you. He's, He's begging almost, and he's being ruthless and hard. And so in this first chapter, we looked at... You know, he just goes at the pagan world, the world of idolatry, and he just shreds them and says, you you have provoked the wrath of God by your doing. And he indicts the entire human race. And then in chapter 2, he switches and he starts to address religious people, primarily the Jews, the Pharisaical Jews, the Jews that had just boatloads of self-righteousness. That's not that they believed they were saved by works. No Pharisee believed you are saved by works. They all believed in God's grace, probably more than you and I, better than you and I. And they were good repenters. They loved to repent. They would put ashes on their head. We don't do that. They would dress in burlap and they would go mourning and they would let everybody see how, how downtrodden they were and they would repent. So they were good repenters. They felt bad about their sin whenever they sinned. But they also did not resort to God's grace. What they would do is they would repent and they would say, look at what a good repenter I am. Look how bad I feel. I really feel horrible. I really feel terrible. And so Paul is zeroing in on a certain kind of person. Our churches are full of them. Maybe one of you or two. I, I doubt it. I don't think anybody at Christ the King would be like this. Um, uh, where you, you have some portion of your life that you reserve and you feel like, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm better than them. I'm not as bad as them. Nobody's perfect. I'm trying. I'm sincere. And Paul is very methodically going through and he is taking an axe to that tree and he is chopping it down because it will send you to eternal damnation. You can spend all your life in church. You can be baptized. You can take the sacrament every week and still be hanging on to that little shred of self-righteousness. And if you don't think you're doing it, that in itself, proves you are. Yes, we are all self-righteous. Everyone, every human being I have ever met, we are experts at convincing ourselves that we're okay. We need God, yeah, we need Jesus, yeah, but underneath, and all you have to do is just point out an idol in somebody's life and watch their reaction. I've done it. I've done it in my own life. I don't like it. I've done it to some of you. And we're no longer friends. Looking at our own hearts is tough. It is hard work. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And Paul is being ruthless. And now he's being ruthless with self-righteous people. 
the Christian moralist, the Christian uh, religious person who is counting at least some part, there's some shred of their self-righteousness. You know, I'm a good person. And it's not that you should be hating yourself. Self-loathing is one of the signs of intense, overarching pride in a person's life. So you find someone that hates themselves and self-loathes, that person's got a problem with pride. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about a person who is just not quite there with the whole thing of grace. When Martin Luther was uh, uh, debating with Erasmus, these two, Erasmus was a humanist, uh, uh, Roman Catholic priest that was a humanist and a brilliant man, and Martin Luther and him would write these letters back and forth, and Luther was gross in his letters. He used bad language, I mean really bad language, very crass, and you know, he was outrageous. Erasmus was much w- more well-tempered. And Luther told him one time, he says, I don't even think, this is a brilliant man, Erasmus. You don't even know, Luther wrote him and said, you don't even know how to spell grace. You can't even spell it. So Paul is not, he's not showing any mercy. And now he's zeroing in on the religious Jew, or you could say the religious moralist Christian who has been baptized and is relying on their church membership, their baptism, their good works. I come here and I serve and I do all these things and, and oh, I believe in grace, I believe in grace. But when something happens in your life, there's this knee-jerk reaction to go and try to do something to make up for what you've done. You don't turn to Jesus. You don't run to Jesus. There's no Jesus until later. I got to get myself right. I got to get back to my devotions, start reading the word. Oh, I haven't been in church in two weeks. I better get back to church. Oh, you know, and, and we, we are experts at that. And you know, God's not, you're not doing God any favor by coming to church. He's not just waiting and holding his breath. Oh, please, I hope they come to church. You come to church because you're coming into a holy place, not because it's a bank, although in America you would probably you didn't get that. Now, this is a holy place. Why? Because you're here. And the Spirit is here. This is why it's holy. And we don't get that. We need to be together. Those of you at home that are not coming back to church, that are members of Christ the King, uh, you're in a lot of trouble. So, YouTube, get back to church. All right, so look at verse 17. We're going to look at three things very quickly, and I promise I won't go over today. Um, We're going to look at the religious resume. You see this come up over and over and over again in Scripture. Paul refers to it many times in Philippians and other places. He, I'm reading 2 Corinthians right now. He rolls out his resume of who he is. And, you know, he does it in a mocking way to say, you know, I'm, I'm a real Jew. You're not even a real Jew. I'm a real Jew. And I'm the tribe of Benjamin. He rolls out his resume. And how often do we do that? In seminary, you know, one of the things that Dr. Pratt, Richard, you hear me talk about Richard, one of the things Richard was there for was to deconstruct that kind of thinking. 
tear it apart. And so he would, the first day of class, he said, how many of you believe in the doctrine of election? And oh man, all the hyper-Calvinists threw their hands into the air. I believe, I'm here because I asked John Calvin into my heart and I believe the reform. And he would spend the next few weeks just tearing it apart, saying there's no such thing as election. What are you, crazy? And everybody, you could see students. Now I was older, so I had the advantage of not being too, I, I knew a trick when I saw it coming. But some of the younger guys, oh my goodness, they were rabid. Richard Pratt, he can't even be a Christian. He must not even be a Christian. Why did they let him in here? Look, verse 17. You call yourselves Jews. You're relying on God's law. You boast about your special relationship. You could put Christian in there too. I, I trust not you, not these, us type of Christians, but people that are just cultural Christians that are relying on some portion of their good doing to commend them to God. You boast about your special relationship. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you've been taught his law. You are convinced. Look at how many times he uses the word you. You. In Greek, it's not always there, but it is implied in the, in the word itself. You convinced that you're all right. You're convinced that you're uh, a light to those in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant. You can teach children. You are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge. He's hammering away at this self-orientation that we inherited, and rightly so, from Adam and Eve in the garden when they took their eyes off of the tree of life and looked at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the text says, Eve looked at the tree, she looked, she took, she ate, she gave. In fact, in Hebrew it says, she did it, she did it, she did it. She took, she ate, she gave. And Derek Kidner said, so simple, the act. So hard, it's undoing. We think we know. You see, we went to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and from that moment we became uh, infected, if you will, in every part of our being with this flaw of self-orientation. We can't get away from it. Everything we think about is generally around ourselves. You say, well, I I give my life, I love people, and I'm selfless. That very statement is selfish. To even make it, to even think it. Now, I was fortunate to be raised in a family with, you know, some old traditional people, and they were extraordinarily selfless. They gave their life away so their children could have a better future here in the United States. They came from the warring Middle East and came here at great expense to their lives so that we could have a better life. But somewhere down underneath that, there's selfishness still. I want my kids to get a special life. I want to have my, I want to make sure my family is safe. I want uh, all good. Those are virtuous things. Not saying they're not. But we start to count on them. We start to put them in our bank account and think, 
you know, this is pretty good. I can roll this out someday. I can make people think I'm better than you. You think you're better than me? Remember Izzy Mezzelbaum, uh, uh, what was his name, Raul? Mendelbaum, Mendelbaum, yeah. Izzy Mendelbaum, you think you're better than me? Well, Paul's going to say in a minute, yeah, there's lots of people better than you. Who do you think you are? So he says arrogance, hubris, self-confidence, and pride are often hidden. They're under there, and they need to be exposed. And he's going to come in and expose them. Why? Because he wants to make us feel guilty? No, we're plenty capable of making ourselves feel guilty. He doesn't need to make us feel guilty. What he's doing is pointing out the cancer. He's saying, this will kill you. Look at it. Treat it. Don't let it get you. Why? Because I love you. I don't want it to happen to you. Do whatever it takes. Fight. Arrogance, hubris, self-confidence, pride, they're often underneath layers and layers of false humility. We take, you know, I never miss church. I'm there every week. And, we, and that's good. Listen, we want you to come every week. And we want you to give lots and lots of money. And lots and lots of time. Nobody's laughing this morning. What is wrong with you? It's the Apostle Paul's fault. He was not a comedian, let me tell you. <laughs> All right. What Paul is working at and what Jesus often worked at was to disassemble what we call a transactional relationship between us and God. Paul wants to destroy the transactional relationship. Jesus wanted to destroy the transactional relationship that we have with other humans. And so he relentlessly taught, if they ask you for your coat, give them your cloak also. If they ask you to go a mile, go two. This is what Jesus was trying to do. Don't treat it the golden rule. Don't treat other people the way they treat you. Treat other people the way you would like to be treated. Stop being transactional. If you did that with your children, if you did that with your spouse, if you did that everywhere in life, you can't even begin to imagine the glory that would start to emanate. But Christians have never, and that's legitimately so, because in the garden... We saw, we took, we ate. We expected to get something from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what we got, we deserved. Death. And everything in our lives become transitive. Why we can't forgive. Well, I'll forgive them if they feel bad. Well, I'll, I'll give them if they give me. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And on and on and on it goes. And it's destroyed our marriage. I spent years in my marriage all transactional. You wash the dishes, I'll go pick up the poop in the backyard. 50-50. You know it doesn't work, folks. You know that it will kill you. And if you, and there are people, this planet is full, whole religions. In fact, Tim Keller argues that every religion is based on transaction. Except Orthodox, historic, grace-oriented Christianity. It's the only religion out there where the deity says to humankind, I will do for you. You do nothing for me. I'll do for you. No strings attached. 
All I want from you is you to trust me. When I say, don't eat from that tree of knowledge and good and evil, instead, eat from that tree. That's the one you want to eat from. The tree of life, not the tree of good and evil. And I'll tell you, you've got to dig down deep, folks. It's uncomfortable. I'll be the first one to say it because we want to roll out this religious resume. Uh, it's the only way I can, you know, of our good doing, of our merit. And uh, look, I, I, I preach this. I live this stuff. This is my whole life, and I still do it. All you have to do in in order to see the devil come out of me is come and criticize me. Well, I didn't like your sermon today. And maybe I deserved it. Maybe I said something stupid in the sermon. I've been known to do that maybe once in a blue moon. (laughs) And I've had people come and, you know, I need to say something to you. And they roll out all their stuff that, you know, they want to criticize. And I don't like it. And I have to really battle. You don't know the battle that goes on because I'm extraordinarily prideful along with being such a great person. Otherwise, uh, folks, there's a, there's a button that we can find and push. And when we do, all that self-righteousness will come to the surface. That's why when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin of Pharisees, these are religious, these are theologians of the highest rank. They all got together and they looked at each other. They're in a circle and they're looking at each other. He just raised somebody from the dead. Legit, we were there, we saw it. What do we do? And the self-righteousness rose up, the jealousy. Well, I know what we'll do. We'll kill him. That's the answer. Let's crucify him. Great idea. Do you see where pride and hubris and arrogance will take you? It'll kill you. So don't be mad at the Apostle Paul. And don't be mad at Eve for taking the fruit because her numbskull husband was right there with her and kept silent, never opened his mouth and took the fruit. And here we are. And don't think you would have done any better. Because we do it every day, right? We're still doing it. And so Paul is pleading with all his might, stop. So he gives us a reality check. Look at this. This is great. uh, Verse 21. He's just going to start. Remember, Paul was a rabbi and he knew how to teach. He knew how to ask questions that he already knew the answers to. He never asked a question. He didn't. He was a good lawyer. He always asked questions he knew the answer to, but he also knew what questions to ask in order to open our presuppositions. You see, this is what the Scripture does. It asks us questions to open our presuppositions about things so that we will be honest with ourselves. Why? Because we're barely ever honest with ourselves. We've had to do that because of shame and guilt and the wounds of sin, the darkness, the death, the blindness that's in there, we know. And so we suppress the
the truth like he said in chapter 1. We suppress the truth and we reach out for anything to give us meaning and hope. It doesn't matter. It can be something good. It could be John Calvin. Please. It doesn't matter. We're desperate because we know. But the one cure will take you down so far that we're afraid to go there. Now look, I know I've been, been there uh, this morning. I have to go there before I preach, in case you didn't know. And so do you. We all have to go there, but sometimes it's too hard to look. We just can't. So Paul gives us a reality check. He shows the resume is not going to work, folks, not going to help you. And then he says, here's the reality. He starts asking questions. If you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you? You condemn idolatry, but do you steal, uh, use items that are stolen from temples? He's not saying literally going and stealing. He's saying, do you borrow from, uh, from pagan idolatry and you don't even see that you're doing it? You're reaching over and getting something like, like what they would use. Something to make you acceptable to God. Do you do these things? You're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God? By breaking it. You see, God doesn't... Uh, uh, Gary reminded us recently in one of our session meetings, God's not looking for obedience. He's looking for what? Perfect obedience. He doesn't want your 99%. He's already seen 100% from His Son. So don't bring Him 99% and say, boy, this has got to measure up somewhere. No, when we do that, we are judging like what he just condemned in, in chapter 1. You can't judge others. And you're judging Jesus Christ Himself when you say, my 99.9% ought to count for something. It doesn't. And you should be thanking God. We should be thanking God that it doesn't count for nothing. Because it's really not 99.9%. It's a lot less. We've fooled ourselves into thinking it's 99.9. Self-righteousness. It's deadly. And Paul is deconstructed. Yes, we steal. In our hearts, we commit adultery. We murder. Jesus said, are you angry with someone? You're committing adultery. You know, you're committing uh, murder in your heart. How many times I've been on my knees for killing somebody because I'm really mad. And sometimes I might have maybe 50% of reason to be mad. Maybe 75. Maybe 90. Maybe 99. Never 100. Never. Nobody's ever a victim that much. It's impossible. Unless you're a little child or something, and that's a whole nother, whole nother category. Human beings, we know what's wrong. We know there's something growing inside of us, and we desperately push it down. The point of coming to church, the point of hearing the gospel message is so that you will just blow it open and fall on your knees and say, Jesus, save me. That's all. Just save me. Help me. That's all. Nothing more. He doesn't want anything more from you because he 
did it all. We know that just knowing about something is not the same as knowing and doing, but in Hebrew and in Greek, both, the language is pretty implicit. It's even explicit at times that if you know something, you are under obligation to do. It's not like you can just sit back and fill your head with a lot of knowledge, which is something that is so dangerous for us in, uh, uh, in, re- in the Reformed world because we love all of the theology and Bible. Look, I love it. I went to seminary. I gave up a lot of stuff to go to seminary. I, you know, all that's great. I wanted every shred of knowledge I could get. But if all it does is make your head swell and get bigger and bigger and bigger, then you've got little tiny arms like this. You don't do anything. You're like the stick figure that's a big head, little tiny arms. And your heart, oh, it's just microscopic. We don't want to get too excited because we don't want to feel, you know, feelings are bad. Who told you feelings were bad? When you were born again, didn't God redeem your feelings along with your mind and your body and everything else? Did he leave your feelings out and say, oh, you shouldn't have feelings? That's crazy, folks. That's just dumb. Don't be dumb. Be like your pastor. (laughs) All right, so the reality check. And Paul gives him this. Here's the reality, the sad truth. Look at verse 24. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles are unbelievers and blaspheme the name of God because of you. Look, you don't have to do much. Open your news feed on your phone and you can see Christians in the United States of America, (coughs) pardon me, (coughs) are laughable. We have become a joke. Now when I say that, I'm saying in the broad, wide, big sense of Christians in America. Because we have allied ourselves with things that do not please God. We've joined ourselves to these things, ideas, political parties, all kinds of things. We, we, we think it's good. We think it's virtuous. We, can, we convince ourselves it's okay. And all the time, God is saying, it's not okay. Not okay. Stop it. Stop it. And we don't listen. You're in a church where we are going to challenge you the way the Apostle Paul says. The sad truth is, 64%, listen folks, 64% of children that are raised in evangelical churches are deconstructing. This means they are leaving the faith. And they don't just leave, sometimes they leave the faith for legitimate reasons. They were in a church where they were abused, they were put upon, they, they were brought up in a legalistic environment, a lot of rules, keep the rules, the purity movement, if some of you remember back in the 90s, you know the, the purity rings and all of that. All uh, This is what makes you right. This is what makes you okay with God. Do you see it? Keep these rules. Follow the. Don't do this. Don't do that. And God will approve of you. Now you already know He's not going to approve of you if you go the other way. That doesn't need to be stated. But who are we to come and add more stuff when the Bible doesn't do that. Who are we to do that? And yet Christians have been doing this since day one. 
What was the, why did Paul write the letter of Romans? Why did he write the letter of Galatians? Why did he write the letter of Philippians? Why is there a chapter in your Bible, Acts 15? Why is it even there? The reason it's there is because the biggest problem in the first century church was not persecution. The biggest problem was the Jews, the religious people, looking at the Gentiles who had a bone in their nose and tattoos all over their body and drank and smoked and did all kinds of crazy stuff and they were coming to church. What do we do about the Gentiles? Now, if you don't think that's a hard issue, then you just have to I mean, look around. We're all the same color, pretty much. Folks, we've got to get real about this. And this is what the book of Romans is doing. It's just peeling, back, peeling it back. And Paul is saying, listen to me. You cannot depend on your pedigree, your self-righteousness, who you are, how much you go to church. If your theology is all, you've got all your theological ducks in a row. You can't depend on that. You can't depend on having a good heart, being sincere, blah, 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 blah. You can't. He's going to deconstruct our religiousness. And if we don't want our kids to believe, look, I have two sons. One is 30, gosh, 39. He'll be 30, 38. I have another that's 40. And, uh, and listen, I raised them with a boatload of rules. I, I can't even count it. There's so many. No rock and roll, no Seinfeld, no this, no that, I, you know, no TV, no that. I made them their purity rings because I was in the business and I could cast gold and I made them their purity rings. Don't you ever touch a girl. Don't ever look at a girl straight in the eye. Like Charlie Brown, uh, the adults. You ever heard an adult speak in Charlie Brown? What do they say? That's what my sons were hearing. Mahatma Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Are we making Christianity attractive, or is it just, eh, not too good? Okay. You can thank me later for heaping all this guilt on you. (laughs) So you think you're better than me? Well, Paul says something right here that is very interesting. Look at verse 26 and 27. If Gentiles obey the law... Won't God declare them to be his own people? Listen to this. Wow. In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised or baptized, you can use whatever, and possess the law but don't obey it. You see, we always wonder, you know, what's God going to do with all the good people out there? You know, he's going to judge everybody fairly. Did you look at the, the quote in your, in your bulletin this morning? I know some of you might skip over. This was amazing. Dane Ortland, a young man that wrote uh, this book we've been giving out. Here's what he said. It's in the front of your bulletin, first thing. No one gets injustice from God, either justice or mercy. Justice in hell, mercy in heaven. No injustice. 
No one is going to go into punishment if they don't deserve it. God is going to give perfect justice to every person he judges. Bad people, listen to this, is brilliant. Bad people get a bad result in hell. Bad people get a good result in heaven. There's no such thing as a category as a good person getting a bad result. Well, once there was. Till my dying day, folks, I'm not going to ever stop pointing you to Jesus Christ. Look, you don't, no one got a raw deal except Him. There are going to be people in heaven you couldn't believe. How did they get here? I know for a fact that they didn't come to our church. Don't let that surprise you. God loves mercy. He loves it. He loves to share it. He loves to pour it out on the unworthy. Look at us. We are them. We should be looking around at the world and saying, there's billions of people better than me. Better than me. More moral, more righteous, and they belong to different religions. They're still better than me. I needed a man on a cross to save me. That's how far God had to go to get me. Who do I think I am? I Have I lost my mind? And Paul doesn't let, he's not going to let that stand. He's going to say, no. Quit wondering what God is going to do with those people that have never heard. He'll take care of them. It will be all right. What about you? So we've looked at the resume, the reality check. Now there's one thing, and this is why I chose the ESV or the uh, NLT this week. Because they insert a word called the true. Look at verses 29. You're not a Jew because of Jewish parents who've been circumcised. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter rather than changing the heart produced by the Spirit. That person seeks praise from God and not from people. That word true is not in the original Greek. It's just not there. But because of the way it's structured, it is implied that the true, the genuine, the authentic, the real Jewish person, and and Jew is in quotes, the real Christian The real believer, not the religious moralist, not the person that just tries to do a lot of good, but the real person whose heart is connected to Almighty God, the true one. That person will be obedient. That person will obey perfectly. Will do everything that God requires. So you've got to ask yourself, who is that true Jew? Every time you're tempted to bring up some excuse and, you know, I'm righteous. Who's the true Jew he's talking about? Who's the one whose heart was right with God every moment of his life? Who's the one that was not merely obeying the letter of the law, although he did, he never broke the law. He obeyed it to its absolute nth degree. But in everything he did, it was infused with the Spirit of God. 
whose heart only beat for his father and nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. Nothing could even tempt him. He would refuse at his own expense anything to please his father. At Jesus' baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, and at the end, at the transfiguration, two times God appears and says with an audible voice, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And like God in the garden, we don't want to listen. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Jesus said, My nourishment is doing the will of God who sent me and finishing His work. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the One who sent me. Not my own will. I've come from heaven to do the will of God who sent me. Not my own will. The One who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me. Not yet. For I always do what pleases Him. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. Just as my Father knows me, I know the Father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it up again. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Listen. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. Folks, whatever vampire of self-righteousness is still clinging, when you see it, and you should, you'll see it every day, actually, if you have spending any time with God in prayer and reading your Bible, it will roll around in you. If the Holy Spirit is in you, you'll see it. When you see it, be ruthless. Take a stake. Drive it into the heart of that self-righteousness. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Save me, Jesus, or I die. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy that endures forever. And I pray that you will remove every shred of guilt and shame from our life because we see on the cross our Savior bearing our guilt and our shame. Help us. Save us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.